broadcast system. Stand by. Robert Downey Jr., actor, entrepreneur, founder of Footprint Coalition, Rachel Croper, science liaison, impact advisor, managing director of FootprintCoalition.org. Welcome back to the Downstream channel where we explore the issues impacting the planet. There is a mystery box underneath which we reveal a theme. We have quotes of the day. We give a little background in history and then we bring in amazing guests well, to kind of can, try to, yeah? Hold on. Uh, you're not here today? I'm there in... Spirit and in stuffing. Hmm. Courtesy of Nate Merritt. See, I am there with you, and I'm also, we are now coast to coast. This is huge. It's actually so funny, this perspective that I have on your doll over here. It's super um, piercing. <laughs> Today, the mystery uh, is mine for you to see. Uh, why don't you lift the box revealing said item? Here we go. Whoa. What is it? Well, it looks like bacon. Looks like bacon, smells like bacon, and tastes like bacon, but it was not made from a pig. Let's give it the taste test. Mmm. Mmm. Tastes like bacon. It really does. People don't know this, but you're a resident swine expert. You got some pigs of your own, right? There's a lot that people don't know about me. Like what? Like, I have a special affinity for a cooney cooney pig named Ladybug. So you're a pig whisperer. You feel like you're a natural-born farmer? I, I would say that I'm more of a hunter-gatherer type. Have you hunted or gathered recently? I like to think I've been gathering. I've been gathering data. I've been gathering a team. And cutting you back on the gathered. meat, really, right? Full disclosure, I am a pescatarian. I was a vegetarian before. Uh, I, I, I've, I've run the gamut. And by the way, not to rub it in, but I also have a little bit of carbonara here. <laughs> ah, so that takes us to talking about meatlessness. That's our theme. Yeah, if we just de-guilt the whole thing, can we be clear? We are not here to hate on meat. No, we're not. Meat has been pivotal to Homo sapiens evolution throughout our time on the planet, correct? Yes. In fact, I have a quote for you. Oh, let's get into the quotes. Up first, Rachel Kropa. Okay, good. The idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. That's Dr. Paul Farmer, Partners in Health. Well, 50 years hence, we shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium. Winston Churchill. Sir Winston to you. <laughs> How prescient. Today we're going to talk about the solutions ranging from eating food fresh from the lab to benefits of going cold turkey on turkey to some of the meat replacements coming to store shelves a little sooner. So join us as we take a cruise on FPC's Downstream Channel. Downstream. 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 
Uh, I'm curious, is some amount of meat good for us? Because on, on paper, it sounds pretty good. Many studies have shown that high-protein diets that include meat increases metabolic rate, reduces hunger, and promotes fullness. Animal protein intake is consistently linked to increased muscle mass. Animal protein may improve bone density and strength. In one study, older women with the highest intake of animal protein had a 69% decreased risk of hip fractures. Red meat is a good source of zinc, which can help the body produce testosterone and selenium. Selenium, the chemical element of atomic number 34, a gray crystalline non-metal with semiconducting properties. It might make sense in moderation, but right now, Americans aren't consuming in moderation. The U.S. double the global average for meat consumption. Could we possibly grow meat without any uncontrollable outside factors? The answer is yes, and our next guest is the perfect person to explain why. Isha Datar is the executive director of New Harvest, a global nonprofit that's building the field of cellular agriculture. Cellular agriculture, the production of animal source foods from cell culture. Hello. Robert. <laughs> Hi, Isha. Where does this find you? Where are you presently, dear? I am in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, the northernmost metropolis in North America. You know, we have our, our quotes of the day here, and you use that Carl Sagan quote, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. What does that mean in the context and the realm of cellular agriculture? What it meant for me was a question of approach in the work that I do. Um, so back when I started all of this 2013, I was tasked with the idea of how do we make meat grown from cells. And Carl's quote made me realize that we don't create meat from cells by me going in the lab multiplying cells. We create it by creating the universe um, from which cell cultured meat arises. My mom is a horticulturalist and my dad is a, uh, did a pharmacology degree and is a doctor. And when you kind of bring together those things, it, it does lead you to a world of producing foods using cell cultures. And so I learned about this because I was doing a cell biology degree and randomly decided to take a meat science class because I saw a poster for it on the wall. And within the first couple classes, I was just blown away that so much of the earth is used to raise animals for food um, and just kind of felt shocked. Mm -hmm. um, and meat consumption and dairy consumption, all that stuff was actually such a huge contributor to that. And changing that did not require completely rebuilding cities or changing like everyone's lifestyle. Um, changing that meant changing the products and changing the processes and reinventing all of that. And so my professor actually just at the end of one class one day, he said, oh, or maybe one day we could grow meat from cells. And I was just like, that was the thing yeah. that brought it all into uh, focus. I have a natural knee-jerk reaction, how do we demystify whatever concerns people might have about its ick factor? Ick factor, a factor that makes one feel dirty or unclean. On one hand, you're dealing with the surface, as you say, like gut reaction of, am I going to put this thing in my mouth? And on the other hand, you're dealing with like all the data that people might want to see that helps people get past that ick factor. Very early on, I tasted like a sample of milk that was created from milk protein separately co combined with water. And when I tasted it, it was like, this is like, I, I was like gagging, it was not amazing. And I thought, this is just version 1.0. So like, it's not gonna be like this forever. 
But by contrast, the first time I tasted cultured meat, it was in the form of a steak chip. So it was like a potato chip, like it was crunchy, very small, crispy. And I had no hesitation about putting that in my mouth because it was just so different that there was no like, is this a fake thing? It was just like a, a new thing. That's kind of a good point about actually the the idea that you could make some other meat maybe that doesn't yes. currently exist. The snack thing I really like because it ties into kind of the second part of your question, which is how do you get people to want this? You know, snack foods have so much packaging and so much storytelling associated with it. Whereas when you buy meat at the store, there's almost no storytelling associated with it. Storytelling wise, you really get this one shot to make it seem normal. And there's never been a better time than now. I think a lot of people want to talk about this as normal by rooting it in meat, milk and eggs as we know it today. I think we should embrace it for the opportunity it presents us and the technology it presents us and all the story behind it and kind of be open to leaving meat, milk, and eggs as concepts, like, behind. You can imagine that kind of thing being captivating for a consumer. Like, this has never been tried before. People try things that they haven't tried before all the time. This is unleashing a whole new era of culinary creativity. You're eating a thing that didn't exist. You know, fewer people have eaten this than have been on the moon. See, I got to say, this is why you're so necessary in this transition, because you don't seem like someone who wants to get in where you fit in. You seem like someone who wants to blaze new trails. Thank you, Robert. That means a lot. <laughs> well, so here's I mean, my, you know. my question about that is, uh, what could possibly go wrong? One of the things I was very, very worried about was safety. You know, if that first product comes out, that first steak chip make someone sick, how many decades will we be held back? And how many decades will we wait for this to be realized? Uh, who, who knows? We can really pull people together and figure out how do we do this safe? How do we hold ourselves to a super high standard um, so that when we do put things on the market, we're, we're on the path towards better for everyone. I would say too, as a, as a counterpoint, you know, what could go wrong Less than already has with the internet and AI. That is exactly the thing I've been thinking about lately because that genie is out of that bottle. The cell egg genie is still in the bottle. When do you think this genie comes out of the bottle officially? Like when is when is, are products going to be on the market? There is a product that was approved for sale in Singapore mm -hmm. by a company called Eat Just. And so they're serving it in a very exclusive restaurant in Singapore right now. So we're going to just see these like little bursts of products. I think it's going to be a while before we see something really reliably on store shelves the way we're seeing with Impossible and Beyond. But it's getting out there into the real world. So, you know, very soon. Since you're a meat eater right now, what are your current constraints around meat eating? Like, what are you looking for? I've moved into a phase of just non-judgmental consuming because I really do feel like if we want to see change in the world, it's not really fair to put it on individual consumers to have the weight of the world and what happens on, on like the, the dinner decisions that we make. It really has to come from policy amazing options in the grocery store and you know this like global energy for 
how we should be eating. Free your mind and your egg will follow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Isha, it is truly a pleasure. Um, expect us to be back in touch. Thank you so much. Cellular agriculture will soon be able to give us the meat without taking the whole animal. But the benefits of finding alternatives extend beyond the ethical and health arguments we've heard. Cutting out industrial farmed meat from our diet is probably the single best thing we can do for the earth. That's because of the environmental threat that current livestock practices pose to our planet. I'm excited, Rachel. Who's next? Tracy McWhirter is joining us. She's the author of By Any Greens Necessary and The Ageless Vegan. She launched the 10,000 Black Vegan Women Movement this past year. Wow. Hello, dear. How are you? It's great to be here. It's appropriate that Tracy comes to us from the kitchen because she said that she, uh, she really has a lot of cooking and demos and things to do usually, so that's her spot. Yeah. Why have us humans started to reevaluate our relationship with meat over time? Well, you know, it's a it's a great question. I'm glad we're starting with that. The way that most of us eat is based on factory farming. Factory farming, a term commonly used to describe industrial facilities that raise large numbers of farm animals in intensive confinement where their movements are extremely inhibited. It's based on um, production of billions of animals every year that are cruelly raised. You know, it exploits the workers. Um, it exploits the communities that these hog farms, these cattle farms, these chicken farms... Um, are in. Um, it ruins their waterways. There's so much land devastation that happens because of factory farming. That is how most people get their meat. And so I think that that's one of the reasons that people are reevaluating it now, right? Because we know that there is this effect on our health and on the climate. What was your process that got you to where you are, who and what you are now? Well, I am an unlikely vegan because um, I was never expecting to be vegan. I was raised as a healthy eater. You know, my mother was an omnivore. We were raised as omnivores in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but healthier omnivores. So we didn't have cookie jars. We didn't have candy. We had, you know, we cooked our meals from scratch and we ate, um, you know, pretty healthfully. And I didn't like it. And I had cousins who had lots of junk food and I love going over their house to eat. And so when I went to Amherst College in 1984, I gained 25 pounds my first year because I was away from home and I could eat whatever I wanted. So that was pizza, cheeseburgers, hamburgers, hot dogs, desserts all the time, all day, every day. And then my sophomore year, our Black Student Union brought Dick Gregory to campus to talk about the state of Black America. And instead, he talked about the plate of Black America and how unhealthfully fo most folks eat. And um, Dick Gregory, by that time, had been a vegan for 20 years. And he started because of the practice of nonviolence during the Civil Rights Movement in 1965. He mm -hmm. was a right-hand person for King, extended the uh, philosophy of nonviolence to include animals, um, and then in 67, became a vegan for health reasons. Do you still discuss veganism in all those ways? Or when you're talking to people, is there sort of an easy point in for folks? Yeah. So, you know, I, I um, 
am a public health nutritionist. I changed professions because of my veganism. So um, my entry point personally is usually health. And so I'm really trying to free people's minds and give them different information so they can make informed choices. I remember you saying your, your family is a uh part vegan and part not vegan. And how do you deal with like Thanksgiving in that context? <laughs> my mother um, and one of my sisters went vegan with me, uh, you know, 34 years ago. And one of my sisters did not. And um, the sister who did not is very supportive, but she is not interested in being vegan herself. And we love each other. You know, we're families, we're, we're grown. And so we respect each other's choices. And she knows that if she has questions about it or, you know, we're here for her. It doesn't have to become a point of conflict if you love the person. You've led so many folks to re-examine their meat consumption in a way that is not, uh, is not divisive. What do you find inspires people to be able to see a different, uh, that perspective shift? Um, I think meeting people where they are and, and having and showing grace and I don't mean me showing grace. I mean, me asking them to show themselves some grace, right? So if they have a desire to go vegan and they find it difficult, they start, they stop, they start, they stop. Um, if you like to have lasagna, if you like to have chili, if you like to have soups and stews, if you like to have stir fries, what are the foods that you most like to eat? Five to seven to nine of them. Let's talk about how to veganize them. Most likely you're already eating grains, you're already eating vegetables, you're already eating fruit, you're already eating nuts. So if you are making something like a pasta or a stir fry, you may be adding fish or chicken or beef or pork. So how about you add some chickpeas or some red beans or you add some cashews? It's the idea of opening up, not thinking, not closing down. Think about the abundance of what you can eat and your seasonings and your sauces, your spices, your herbs, that's what makes it your flour, your oil. That's what makes it taste good. And that's already vegan. Will you tell us a little bit about the 10,000 Black Vegan Women uh, project this past year? And, and maybe Robert can be plus one white vegan man. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so I started 10,000 Black Vegan Women in 2020 um, because I was celebrating the 10-year anniversary of my first book, By Any Greens Necessary, which was the first vegan diet book for Black women. I focus on Black women um, because while we are fabulous, we have the worst health outcomes in the country. The worst, you know, down the line, heart disease, stroke, um, high cholesterol, unhealthy weight, diabetes, you know, and it's unacceptable to me. But there are 300,000 Black people a year who die from primarily diet-related chronic diseases. 50,000 Black women a year die from heart disease, which is completely preventable. I have the ability to, to impact this many people who don't know about the fact that their food is killing them and why, right? Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of work to be done, you know? And I see the success and, and, and the way that I'm able to help, change, help people change their own lives. It's wild too, you know, this idea of the legacy that you pass on. Forget your passion and what you're doing, but just that the path chose you and that you're seeing that uh, you'll be lighting the way for others too. You know, it's, it's really, really, really cool. And I trust that we're going to be uh, looking for you and following up. And I just keep thinking like, I would love 
uh, uh, cookbooks from you. I will send you some. Absolutely. I will, I, my mom and I wrote Ageless Vegan together, and I, I can send that to you. As usual, Kropa, you were right. Great guest. I will look forward to getting to know you a little better, and we will uh, stay in touch with you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Rachel. This was fun. I'll tell you what's really cool about going on this journey with you, Rach. We're still in that kind of time before whatever the new normal is going to be. And it's keeping me engaged because it's like it's building new neuropathways. And I hope so. I'm glad that you were right. That if we combine these types of people in these different fields, that we would find a useful spot for us and our uh, messaging. Someday we'll both be experts. By the way, to sound like experts, why don't we go to a part where we read a bunch of cool data and it makes it seem like we're off book and we're geniuses. Three, two, one, go. The most significant existential threat that animal agriculture poses is its greenhouse gas emissions. It's responsible for 18% of greenhouse gas emissions. That makes it the second biggest contributor following only electricity. Meat production emits more than all of global transportation. As economies grow, demand for meat will only increase. And we have to remember, the global population continues to rise. There will be about 10 billion people by 2050, all in need of protein. Our next guest is here to take us on a magical mystery tour of mushrooms. He's Eben Bear the founder of Ecovative Design and the brains behind its spin-off company, Atlas Foods. Hey, pal. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're joining us from, uh, from off the grid in New York, and you grew up on a farm in central Vermont. So you're not most people's idea of a startup founder. Uh, well, it actually kind of goes back to my roots. So I grew up on a small crop farm in, in Vermont, raised pigs, raised cows, raised chickens, made maple syrup. I was a true working farm and uh, I couldn't get wait, wait to get off the farm and like enter society uh, and go to engineering school. I wanted to work with technology, work with computers, work with jet engines. And it was uh, when I got to school and I started to live in a city that I was like freaked out by how people lived uh, compared to like this idyllic farming community I grew up in. Uh, it was about halfway through my engineering education that I had like this entire flip in my mind, which is like the greatest technology in the world isn't a jet engine or a rocket ship or a microprocessor. It's like the chicken I left behind on the farm that I was like running away from. It's like this delicately intricate piece of technology. And so I became obsessed with this idea of like, how can we go back to the farm? How can we go back to nature and get technology that lets humans live in harmony on Spaceship Earth? So you co-founded Ecovative, uh, this mushroom company, while you were still an undergrad studying mechanical engineering. And, and you've been at it for uh, over a decade, 14 years plus so will you please tell us about the significance of the shroom? Uh, mushrooms are incredibly understudied. Like the fungal kingdom, which is like one of the three primary kingdoms, you got plants and animals. Uh, mostly we eat one mushroom from this kingdom, the white button mushroom. Uh, we've gotten some amazing antibiotics, but it's like mostly like unexplored uh, technology. And, and I use that word intentionally. And so there's potential to use it for bioremediation. There's potential to use it for new medicines. Uh, what we focus on at Ecovative and Atlas is using the structural uh, components of mushrooms. So the texture, the fibers to either make high performance materials for things like aerospace or leather or really great plant-based meat substitutes like we do at Atlas to help feed the planet. 
there's two things that freak out my wife. One is if you ever see anything rising out of the water, like a submarine or an orca on a TV show or in reality. The other is when it rains and there was nothing in the grass and then you go out and there's mushrooms everywhere. She just goes, how did they get there so quick? Uh, I just watched that happen here. It just rained a bunch and I walked out my basement door and there's like all these mushrooms popping up and they weren't there hours ago. Uh, and that is incredible. And they like go from nothing to these macro scale structures in, in hours. And the reason they can do that is actually the, the secret that powers our companies. Uh, and that's that the mushroom you see is actually a very small part of the life cycle of fungi um, and their biomass. So they spend most of their time underground in this form called mycelium. Mycelium, the vegetative part of a fungus consisting of a network of fine white filaments which is kind of like the root structure of mushrooms, but it's like really this like modular organism that's almost like a living plastic material. And at the right moment or the right signal, it can like shape itself into almost anything. Um, it mostly shapes itself into mushrooms. And kind of what we do is we take advantage of all the different things it could be. And we sort of teach it or trick it by the way we grow it to make other structures that have benefits for humans, um, either in industrial applications like replacing plastic or food. And a lot of the attributes are wildly different, right? What mycelia can do. Yeah. So, so we think of this kind of the forager's secret, which is like if you walk into a forest and you just start lo looking at trees, you'll actually notice there's mushrooms on trees and you can walk up and touch them. And some of them feel silky smooth and some of them have a texture of velvet. Some of them are like gooey and icky. Uh, and some of them are actually gourmet species that people turn into high-end cuts of, of plant-based meat. And so you can get this whole range of properties in mushrooms, but they're like trapped in this mushroom geometry. And so it's like, unlocking this secret is a whole other, I think it's like alien technology that's in the forest. And we're like pulling it out of the forest and, and, and finding a way to use it. So I've got this here. With the bacon specifically, you're, you're growing whole cuts of meat basically, which is an important thing, right? Mm -hmm. This is an important distinction yeah. of what you do. 80% of all the meat that's eaten uh, in the U.S. is whole cuts of meat. So think pork chops, think fish, think steak, think bacon. Only 20% is things like burgers or sausages. So if you're really going to have that like change in consumptive habits, you got to address that, that quadrant. How do you tweak the flavor profile so that mushroom can be pork or chicken or beef? The secret is to go find a mushroom in the forest. And, and we're fortunate that like high-end chefs and these mushroom forager people have already found them over thousands of years that actually take taste like really like pork and have the texture of pork uh, or taste really like beefsteak and have the beefsteak texture. Mm -hmm. And so these are kind of like known secrets, but only to a few, a few people. And so we go get those species and then we work with the organism to re-express those textures and flavors uh, in this, this sort of industrialized process. You know, in the industrialized process, how does it compare to something like livestock farming in terms of the resources that it uses? Uh, this is one of the areas where it's really powerful. Uh, so fungi are very, very efficient at converting lower grade products like wood chips uh, into protein and something that's actually kind of flesh-like. You know, you're talking a, a, a fraction like one one hundredth of the land use or one one thousandth of the land use, a fraction of the water, a fraction of the greenhouse gas emissions. So like straight up CO2. Uh, but also in the case of pork, like there's a lot of issues around effluent and runoff that cause like algae blooms in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's none of that. The only byproducts from the process are water vapor and very small amounts of CO2 because mus mushrooms do respirate just like us, but they do this in a 10 day period. And so also the time domain is like uh, much, much shorter. It's months to grow a pig. It's years to grow a cow. It's days to grow uh, my bacon. And also uh, it all happens in the dark, like all... Perfect procreation should. Uh, I want to show you something that I think you're okay. going to recognize that speaking of materials instead of food is kind of interesting. And I think uh, you probably have a friend that wears one of these. 
you oh, can yeah, see it. It looks like Paul Stamets hat. <laughs> <laughs> it is like is a Paul Stamets hat. The other mushroom yeah. guy. So these are from Transylvania. Beautiful. Right? I decided to order yeah. one because I just had to know. And it's lovely. It smells great. It it's really like pliable. Yeah. You have something maybe in leather you're working on? Yeah. So that actually, the, it's sort of inspired by that work. So they make that material by taking, uh, actually, they go, it's really, it's beautiful. They go right into the woods. They harvest the fruiting bodies off of a tree. And then they sort of like, almost like in a paper making process, they like beat it, mm -hmm. beat that structure out into that sheet format. Because a mushroom isn't big enough to be a hat unless you're a very small person. Right. What we're doing is we're actually selecting the same mushrooms to make our leather that they use to make your hat. But rather than like sort of mushing it into the hat format, we, we get the mushroom to just grow in this like mycelium slab you see here. Mm. Um, that's like has the same structure and velvety feel, but much, much, much more strength. Uh, and we can make these sheets like 50 feet long and four feet wide. So it's much more efficient than an animal hide. And you just sort of cut out the profile uh, you need to make. That's wow. the industrialization component. And that's the component that makes it accessible because these things actually have to be like uh, really cost competitive with what we have. Otherwise they just, they can't scale in capitalism. And so you get your impact effect. You, you gotta have both elements. It's where you get out of the wavy gravy. Well, anybody could make anything from anything if they felt like it, but how is that really uh, pushing the peanut? Yeah, can you tell Love us it. when this is gonna hit the market? Like when can people go buy this in the grocery store? So, so the good news is it's actually on store shelves now. Uh, and I mean store though. <laughs> we pushed really hard to get into one one grocery store in upstate New York. It's at the Honest Way Co-op. It's been on the shelf since November. It's sold along the meat products. And we did that intentionally because we're, we're actually trying to get meat eaters to use the product. And response has been incredible. It sells out in 24 hours uh, every time we deliver. Uh, and we deliver at the rate they told us to deliver based on their pork bacon. Um, more wide availability coming this year. Uh, grocery stores across the Northeastern seaboard. And we may do a DTC program in the fall. Uh, so folks who don't live in uh, upstate New York can get their hands on it. All right, Mr. Bear, we will be in touch. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, and Rachel and I have much to ingest. That was a real uh, education. Very well chosen guests, Kropa. I thought it was great. You know, I think you get a scientific solution that's a little ways out, but coming and really interesting. And then you have the personal story and then the social context. I think you have the near-term solution that hopefully hits grocery stores any time now. What do you think, Bob? Silent Bob has a message for the audience. He's been, he's been patiently waiting for 32 minutes to say it. Silent Bob. Nate, bring us out in a rocket ship made out of bacon and love. 